Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We have in our text another one of those uh, distinctive things that Matthew does, a fulfillment formula where he narrates events to us and then he breaks in and lets us know that these things happened for a reason, that they happened to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes the events that he attaches these prophecies to are very momentous and sometimes they seem to be kind of inconsequential. Here, we're told that Jesus' geographical location, that Jesus's movements into Galilee to begin a phase of his ministry, that that was significant because it happened in fulfillment to prophecy, that the prophet Isaiah, in this case, had prophesied that Jesus would go here to this place, that he named the places, and that now that's significant. It's fulfillment of prophecy. It's interesting, we've seen this already, the way that through these fulfillment formulas, the history of the nation of Israel is transformed into what we might think of as our spiritual history as well. That we're encouraged to look back on what happened in the Old Testament, to see those those actual events as part of a spiritual narrative that applies to us as well. So from physical history to spiritual history. Now we go even a little bit deeper because what Matthew is inviting us to do is to look at the physical geography and to see in the physical geography a spiritual geography. Even the lay of the land turns out to offer a map, as it were, of the human heart. The physical kingdom is a roadmap for the spiritual kingdom not only in the history, but even as here in the geography. Now, this prophecy that he cites from Isaiah 9 comes at the beginning, as I said, of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And Matthew here is jumping forward in time. Even though we get this text immediately after the temptation that we looked at, we do have an indicator here that this is an event that actually jumps ahead. You could easily put a chapter break right there and start a new chapter here because it's tied to chronologically the arrest of John the Baptist. And we know from John's gospel that some stuff happens in between where we were just at in the wilderness and the arrest of John. There's there's more that happens in the early ministry of Jesus. But Matthew is jumping ahead and he's starting his narrative in Galilee and he's doing it For a reason, he wants us to see the ministry of Jesus being uh, headquartered here in this place. If you look at a map of Galilee, it may surprise you to discover where Galilee is located. The the word is familiar to us because we hear it all the time. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, all these important things happen. But if you put your finger on Jerusalem... And then you try to find where Galilee is, you have to travel north. You'll travel up north through Samaria, what was once the northern kingdom until it fell to the Assyrians. And then above that, at like the top of that northern place, you will reach the Sea of Galilee and and the land 
of Galilee. So to get to Galilee, you've got to go north. You go out of that southern kingdom. You go into the north to sort of the top of that land that was really the first of the old kingdom to fall to outside invaders. Right? This was the part of the physical kingdom of Israel that had first fallen into bondage. The significance of Isaiah's prophecy is that Isaiah is saying that the first place to fall will be the first place to be redeemed. That when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will come and he will enter into this land that was shamed and humiliated and he will bring glory to it. So if you go back to the words that Matthew paraphrases for us and see what it was that Isaiah wrote, you'll hear this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, the fall of the physical kingdom, that represented God's punishment of his people for their unfaithfulness their constant idolatry. And now Jesus comes to the place where sin was punished, and he begins there a ministry of redemption, a ministry of grace. This place, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, was a very confused and contradictory place. It was on the outskirts, geographically, but also culturally as well. Because this is the part of the old kingdom that had fallen earliest, the part where outsiders had come in, where people had been carried away into captivity. So people's memory and their understanding of the true religion was really mixed here. And a lot of foreign gods had been mixed into the worship of the people. Their life, their culture was ruled over and and reigned over by unbelievers, Those who longed to be faithful in that world must have felt like they had very little hope of doing it well. Here on the outskirts, far from Jerusalem, far from the center of religion, the temple, they've got all Samaria between them and that place. Here the influence of Yahweh must have felt pretty nominal in comparison to the gods of the culture all around them. In fact, you find a description of Samaria in 2 Kings chapter 17 that, that easily could have applied to this place. It says, So they feared the Lord, Yahweh, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So you find a place where there's worship of the true God side by side with idolatry, mixed together, entangled, difficult to distinguish between them. This place, Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee, was not far from the administrative head of the Gentile government of this place, a place where the Romans ruled and where their culture had great influence. If you think about that, then it seems as if the physical geography of Galilee bears a strong resemblance to what we could call the spiritual geography of our lives. I mean, don't we live in a world that sounds a lot like Galilee, a world of confusion, a world of contradiction? 
Like them, you struggle to find the true path in a culture where other gods reign supreme. Like them, your own heart is conflicted because you're not only in that culture, but you're a product of it. You share its values. You love the things that it loves, and you find within yourself a conflict. When it comes to trying to put your finger on what the real problem is, like that longing to find God and to worship him, but a a longing that's constantly frustrated, where it seems like there's a sense of hopelessness, like things are too messy, like we've gone too far down the wrong path to ever find our way back. It's no surprise that when we do have hope, when we do put some effort into solving a problem, the problems we tend to be passionate about are smaller problems than the problem of sin. They're they're downstream of that. They're things we tell ourselves we have the power to fix, even though we know that even if we could fix those things, we wouldn't fix the world. We'd still be left with this fundamental confusion or, to use the word in our text, this darkness. Darkness is the word. Isaiah describes the inhabitants of this spiritual geography as the people who walked in darkness. Matthew, when he paraphrases this, he emphasizes the connection. Walking means dwelling. Walking means living. The people who dwell, the people who live in a spiritual darkness. Now, darkness in Scripture is one of those words that has multiple layers, multiple meanings. When the Bible talks about darkness, it means a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean nighttime, the absence of the sun. Right? Darkness in Scripture is often delusion or blindness. The Scripture talks about the, the way in which our own sin hides the truth from us. It renders us helpless to find the way. The Bible will often use the term darkness to speak of what we might call depravity, the darkness of sin that snares us. Even our best deeds are corrupted by our wayward hearts. And there's something inside of us, something that's a part of us, that always has the capacity at any moment to go dark, to take that path of sin. Maybe the ultimate connotation of darkness in scripture, though, has to do with hopelessness or despondency. The people who walk in darkness are people who live without hope because darkness means lostness. It means the inability to find your way. You have no hope of getting out. You're ensnared in your sin. It's interesting, though. Last time, when we looked at Jesus' temptation, we saw that when Jesus goes out in the wilderness, he's going straight at the problem of sin. He's going directly face to face with the enemy of the human race, Satan himself. Now, in the next moment that Matthew records for us, Jesus once again is going straight at it. He's going directly into the darkness. He's going straight into Galilee of the nations and he's setting up his ministry of reconciliation. He is preaching his message of light here in the center of the darkness. Jesus carries light into darkness. King Jesus is a carrier of light. But what exactly is the light that he carries? What is the nature of the light that he brings to this darkness? Now, obviously, Isaiah 9, if you go back and look at Isaiah 9, you see 
that's not an accidental quotation here. If you keep reading in Isaiah 9, you'll discover you already know this text. In fact, you could sing it if we jumped ahead to verse 6, because in Isaiah 9, 6, in this messianic prophecy, we sing, whenever we sing along with Handel's Messiah, the words from the King James Version, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, or if you prefer, called, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Again, a king is announced, a kingdom is announced, and these titles are bestowed upon him like crowns. And this is the significance of this Galilean ministry. This is the king bearing the light into darkness, doing what kings do. Kings defeat the enemies of their people. In Matthew's gospel already, we've seen the king's genealogy confirmed, and we've seen his birth and his acclamation by the wise men, their worship of him. We've seen him announced and anointed by the the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. We've even seen him go out and wage war against Satan and return victorious. And now he does what Isaiah the prophet said he would do. He brings the light of his message to the darkness. And what form does the light take? Well, obviously the light is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the light that he brings to the darkness. The apostle John states this really well in the prologue to his gospel when he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That Jesus himself was the embodiment of life and light. So Jesus, by being there, is bringing light into the darkness. But there's another sense in which he brings light. The message of Jesus is light in the darkness. The words he preaches, his sermon, that is light in the darkness. And what is the sermon that he preaches? Matthew summarizes it for us in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sermon sounds familiar. I feel like I heard that one before. In fact, I think like we heard it a chapter ago. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3 and we get the summary of John's preaching, what was the message that John the Baptist preached? It was literally the exact same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John called sinners to repent for the sake of the kingdom. And now Jesus preaches the same message. Now, the gospel of Jesus is fuller than the message of John. As he elaborates, and as we'll see in his teaching, Jesus brings a fuller understanding of the coming of the kingdom than John possessed. But it's not a different message. It's the same message, only better, only more complete. There's a continuity between these two messages, so that again, just as we said, John the Baptist was preaching a very Old Testament sermon, it turns out the light that Jesus proclaims is also a very Old Testament sermon as well. And therein lies a bit of a problem. I don't know about you, but if you said to me, oh, I heard a sermon this week, the text was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I would have a certain kind of picture of that sermon in my head and the way it might have been preached. 
I would imagine probably some raving street preacher, probably carrying a sign of some kind, yelling at people something along the lines of, turn or burn. And the tone of his voice suggests he would rather you burn than turn. It would satisfy him more, like it did Jonah, to see some destruction. Right? Whenever we talk about repentance, about, about preaching about sin, it seems like there's this heavy load of guilt that comes along with that. So that it's a little bit ironic or paradoxical to say that Jesus brings light in the darkness and you're like, oh, I want to hear this message of grace. And it turns out to be not at all what you were expecting to hear. It turns out to be repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How can this be the message that brings light to the darkness. A lot of people would tell you, no, this is the message that creates the darkness in the first place. It creates that heavy burden of guilt that we need to be released from. And how can it be that the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a source of light, not only light, but joy? Because light is another one of those spiritual geography words that has some, some layers of meaning. In Scripture, light in Scripture is not just uh, when the sun comes up. Right? Light in Scripture is associated with genuine learning or knowledge, the power to see clearly. Light is life, as we heard in John's prologue, especially life lived to the glory of God. And light is also laughter. Light is joy in Scripture. So the message of light is a message of laughter, of rejoicing and joy. When people are dwelling in darkness and they hear the call to repent, they receive it with joy, as light. Now, how can that be? Because people who are living in darkness understand that repentance isn't about being good. Repentance is about being free. Last week, I shared one of my favorite military films, Master and Commander, and I thought we'd keep that theme going. We talked about another great war film, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. There's a lot of stuff that makes The Bridge Over the River Kwai a great war film. Uh, one of them is that, that everybody, at least everybody of a certain age, can whistle the theme song to The Bridge Over the River Kwai without any preparation. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but, but just like, raise your hand if you think, yeah, I could do that. Not as many as I thought. Let me see. I'm going to try this. I don't know if it's going to work, but let me see if I can do it. <clears throat> Can't quite get there. There it is. That wasn't as good as the Spider-Man song, but second best. You can file that one away. We did whistle... The Bridge of the River Kwai. If you've never seen the movie, it's kind of fascinating. Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi, plays this guy, Colonel Nicholson, who's a British POW. He's been captured by the Japanese. They're in this, this prisoner of war camp. And the Japanese in Burma, they need this bridge to be built. And Colonel Nicholson is an engineer. And when he sees the sort of shoddy effort that his enemies are making to build this bridge, I mean, the engineer in him just cannot live with this. He is a stickler for the rules. In the prison camp, he always insists on things being done the right way to the extent that he even gets the, the, the enemy in charge to kind of go along with him and to, to honor his whims. 
And so he takes the project of the bridge in hand, and he builds the best bridge that you can build as a group of prisoners of war in the jungle with no resources. This incredible bridge, and he takes pride and satisfaction in this marvel of British engineering. This bridge is something to be proud of, and he he looks upon it that way. He is a man in captivity. He's a man who is forced to serve his enemies, but he is determined because of his character to do that work well, to do it with what we might call righteousness, to do it, as it were, to the glory of God, to build this structure, even for the enemies, so that this bridge will stand as a testament to the men who built it. Despite the horrific conditions, the terrible odds, he perseveres. And and in that darkness, he makes something beautiful. The problem is that when the allies, his own side, come to sabotage the bridge and destroy it so that their enemies cannot use it, Colonel Nicholson, because of his love for his work, fights back. He tries to thwart them and prevent them from destroying the bridge. He's so committed to doing this work well in this terrible captivity that the idea of freedom is unthinkable to him. He has a moment of clarity after he has has committed this great error, after he's prevented the bridge from being destroyed, where he realizes and he says, what have I done? I don't want to spoil it, but then he falls over dead on top of the plunger and it blows up the bridge. That moment when Colonel Nicholson says, what have I done? That's repentance. That's repentance. He comes to a realization that, that for the best of reasons, he's done something terrible, and he turns away from it, and he shows fruit in keeping with repentance, the way John the Baptist says that we should. He was a man who was trying to be very good in a bad world. But what he needed wasn't goodness. What he needed was freedom. When you think about real repentance, remember that. Real repentance is turning away from what is wrong so that you can do what is right. But most people, when they hear the call to repent, they think that repentance is what Colonel Nicholson was doing before his realization. They hear the message and they think the call is to be good in a bad world. To be a righteous and upstanding person even though you live in a world ruled by malevolent powers. So when Jesus speaks this message, it's as if they hear him saying, behave yourself for the kingdom of heaven is here. As if Jesus were saying, be good or else. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus came to destroy the bridge. Jesus is pushing in the plunger. Jesus is here not so that people can be good, but so that they can be free of the bondage that they find themselves in. The coming of the kingdom doesn't mean it's time to straighten up your act. The coming of the kingdom means it is time to walk free. It is time to leave your bondage to sin, to walk out of the darkness. The power to repent is freedom, because the power to repent is the power to walk out of bondage. So the coming of the kingdom brings with it the power to turn from sin. Jesus says to the people who are walking in darkness, come to me and walk in the light. 
come out of the darkness and come into the light. Now, if when you think about repentance, when you think about turning from sin, all you think of is just giving up something that you'd rather just keep doing, but giving up for a good cause. That just sounds like being good. Just being good for the sake of goodness, for the sake of pleasing God. But once you realize that repentance is the power to walk away from your slavery to sin, then when you hear Jesus' words, repent, what you hear is not be good, but be free. Be free. You no longer have to serve your former masters. You no longer have to be in bondage to the powers of darkness. You can walk in freedom. The darkness was hopelessness in the face of delusion and depravity. And your sin and your blindness were so great that there seemed to be no escape. But now the light has come. That light is the presence of the kingdom. And that kingdom gives you the power to leave the darkness behind and enter into new life in Jesus Christ. That's the message that Jesus preached in Galilee of the Gentiles. And not everybody who heard that message liked it. In fact, based on what we'll see, a lot of people who heard that message didn't like it, probably because a lot of people who heard it didn't hear it, didn't understand what was truly being said. But for those who heard, the call to repentance was a call to joy. They heard it, they received that message, they turned, and they found joy in the light. That's the same joy that the Apostle John invites us into through the Gospel. When you look at 1 John, very first chapter, chapter 1, John summarizes the message of the Gospel. And it's the same message that it always was. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So the message to Galilee and the message to us is to walk with Jesus in the light, to walk with Jesus and be free. Jesus gives us the power to walk away from our bondage to sin. We don't need to fight to hold on to this place. Instead, follow Jesus through the spiritual geography that he's taking us through as he leads us to the land of promise. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.